Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is Dr. John Alterman, senior vice president and the Zbigniew Brzezinski chair in global security and geostrategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies where John is also the director of the CSIS Middle East program. John is highly regarded in the United States, in the region, and around the world for his expertise on the Middle East. He is the author of numerous books, studies, articles, and opinion pieces. He's an Arabic speaker and frequent traveler to the region. He knows the people, the thought leaders, and decision makers there. And in the interest of full disclosure, John is a friend and colleague of more than 20 years. My conversation with John Alterman begins now. John, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you, Andrew. Let's get into it. The U.S. has sent an envoy to Israel, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, Hadi Amr. But the violence has escalated, and Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that the operation, quote, could take some time. I hope it won't take long, but it's not immediate, unquote. Close to 200 Palestinians have been killed, 59 children so far in the siege on Gaza. Ten Israelis have been killed. Those numbers are probably likely to be higher by the time our podcast is posted. What can and should the Biden administration be doing at this point? What what? can they do at this point in your view? You know, Andrew, you and I have been looking at this for a long time and it almost feels like people are following a script and the script hasn't yet reached the climax. Uh, The U.S. has generally not acted immediately to, to restrain Israel when there's been one of these conflicts either with Hamas or sometimes with Hezbollah in Lebanon. There's a sense that Israel has a week or two uh, to do what it feels it needs to do. And by sending Hadi Amr, Hadi is relatively junior. He's not in a Senate confirmed position. It gives you plenty of room to escalate up to send more senior envoys. The Israelis, if you look at 2014 conflict, the 2008 conflict, the level of casualties among Palestinians, while high is relatively low compared to previous conflicts, I think we probably have about a week or so of this left before the Israelis will say we did what we need to do before Hamas says, let's find a way out of this. Um, The really disturbing thing about this is that it, it seems to be following this ritual, this normal schedule, uh, People die each time. It it makes people very unsettled, but the parties themselves can't get out of falling into this pattern every few years. And it does feel like it's pattern. It does feel like, as I say, we we have probably another week or so, but we know at the end, uh, Hamas is not going to defeat Israel. It's not gonna push them out of historic Palestine. And Israel has no intention of reinvading Gaza if they can avoid it. After several hundred people or more die, they'll go back into their corners. And at some point, unfortunately, it looks like this is going to happen again. What are the lessons from previous Israeli-Hamas exchanges? You mentioned 2008, 2014. 
and this this pattern or cycle that seems to repeat itself. Is there some takeaway looking at those events that might allow us or inform policy choices at this stage for a better outcome? Well, it seems to me that the, the lesson that you have to draw is that, that these kinds of limited wars don't resolve the underlying problems, that the Trump administration put forward a theory of the case that they were going to solve it, that if you take away uh, international Arab support for the Palestinians, the Palestinians will accept their fate. Uh, they thought that, that this sort of outside-in strategy of, of trying to get peace with the Emiratis and the Bahrainis uh, and others would lead to a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which frankly, whenever I talk to Israelis, they have felt it, it doesn't need to really be resolved. The Palestinians have no way out and they will continue to, to lower the price of peace. Uh, that there's not a problem inside Israel. And so for all of Israel's problems, the real problem is, is Iran, which Israelis are fairly unified on. And when it comes to the urgency or even the necessity of addressing Palestinian issues, that has dropped off. And if you were to talk about addressing Palestinian issues, that would be a very divisive uh, issue in Israel. I think what we have seen is that the problem hasn't gone away. And for Israelis, it seems to me that one of the most disturbing things about the current uh, outbreak of violence is not what's happening in Gaza. It's what's happening within Israel among the 20% or so of Israeli citizens who are Arab. And you have Israeli vigilante groups attacking Arabs, Arab vigilante groups uh, attacking Jews. And that dynamic, I think it must be very disturbing because of an Israeli sense that this maybe was a problem in 1948, maybe it was a problem in the 1950s, but Israelis had moved beyond it and the sense that, that they might not and that this might tear apart Israeli society must be, um, must be very, very distressing. Tom, let's stay on that for a second because this escalation comes at such a volatile time in terms of the social and political trends in Israel and in Palestine. And let's stay on Israel first. You know, there's also the political dynamic. Netanyahu seemed to have been almost out of options to stay on as PM until this fighting started. Now he may have a, a new lease for an extended reign as prime minister, or so it seems. And you mentioned, you know, in addition to Gaza, you have Arab-Israeli citizens, 20% of the population, they're rioting and demonstrating in solidarity with the Palestinians. What can we say about these trend lines in Israel? And once the fighting in Gaza stops, what do you think happens in terms of Israeli politics and kind of the day after and thinking about dealing with this segment of the population, the 20%? I think Israeli politics have been surprising to everybody. And, and, and one of the big surprises is that Israel has been stuck for two years, four elections, and now a fifth election in prospect. Uh, Israeli politics have not been about issues. They've been about Benjamin Netanyahu, a very polarizing figure who seems to be able to get about 50% support. Uh, whether this boosts his support as a sort of nationalist drive or whether it diminishes his support I don't know, but it, it does seem to me that, that Israeli politics 
aren't really about any of the, the fundamental issues about economic orientation, about national security. It really has been reduced to the personality of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and we seem to be trapped in, in that uh, for some time to come, certainly through the next election. Um, one of the problems of Israeli politics, which I think is about to get harder, not easier, is the tradition that only Zionist parties, that is to say Jewish parties, uh, can be in a coalition government, can be part of the majority to form a coalition government. That requires a supermajority of the, the Israeli population. Uh, and we seem to be on the verge, first with Netanyahu trying to court uh, an Islamist Arab politician in Israel to be part of his majority, and then the, the prospect that the head of the, the Ram party would be part of the anti-Netanyahu coalition, I think was perhaps beginning to end that taboo on incorporating Arabs into government. I wonder if that taboo will be stronger. I wonder what Arab turnout would be in the next round of election. It seems to me it makes the math of assembling uh, an Israeli government even harder when you can't include a large percent of, of your population and you have to have this supermajority, it seems to me that, that it's hard in current Israeli conditions to assemble a supermajority. The other piece of this, which I think is very important, we can talk about the fact that there are really three political crises going on, an Israeli political crisis, a Palestinian political crisis, and a Hamas political crisis going on simultaneously. But it seems to me that, that for Netanyahu, what he has allowed is that Hamas got to dictate the terms of how Israel relates to its Arab minority. Uh, that this was a Jerusalem problem, it was a, 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 which became, with Hamas's action, an Israeli-Palestinian problem, which became an Israeli Jew versus Israeli Arab problem. It seems to me that strategically, from an Israeli point of view, you don't want to cede the um, the initiative to Hamas to determine how Jews and Arabs get along in Israel. And I think that was a profound mistake uh, to, not, to not split that and to allow Hamas to, in many ways, not only dictate how Palestinians in, in the West Bank and Gaza relate to Israel, which has certainly happened before and is happening now, but how Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews relate to the state of Israel. Um, let's look at the other side. I've heard you say that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who was elected 16 years ago as president, has stayed on well past his sell-by date. He has little influence in either Gaza, of course, where Hamas rules, or with the Jerusalem protesters, let alone the Arab citizens of Israel, who are also demonstrating and rioting. How can Israel, the U.S., or anyone move to a post-conflict negotiation when the Palestinian leadership is so fragmented? You know, a deal could, could give an olive branch to Mahmoud Abbas. I think you could potentially see a way uh, to lead to some future leadership post Abbas. But part of the challenge is that, that Abbas just canceled uh, Palestinian legislative elections, presumably was going to cancel Palestinian presidential elections because he knew his guys would lose. And 
that. There is a Palestinian political crisis. There are several different uh, competitors to lead the Palestinian community. And it does seem to me that, that you can make an Israel-Hamas deal and the Qataris and the Egyptians can help you broker that. But it highlights the importance of going beyond that and doing something about the Palestinian political leadership. And I think for the Israelis, that's a daunting prospect because they're not crazy about any of the potential candidates. And you know, one is uh, Marwan Barghouti is currently in an Israeli jail. They don't want Hamas to win. It's possible that the Emiratis will be able to put forward somebody like Mohammed Dahlan, uh, who the Israelis are presumably a little more comfortable with. But I do think that that you need to think about what uh, a genuinely legitimate Palestinian leadership would look like. Uh, it's not going to look like 85-year-old Mahmoud Abbas, who's overstayed his welcome. But the other options aren't great, and and the rise of other options is likely to create, at least in the near term, more instability in the Palestinian community rather than less. Even recent events and U.S.-Israeli differences over Iran, how do you see the U.S.-Israel relationship playing out during the rest of the Biden administration or over the next three, three or four years? Biden has expressed concern about the escalation and, and the deaths and casualties, but Netanyahu doesn't seem to be feeling any or much U.S. pressure and the U.S. on Sunday blocked a Security Council resolution. Do you see the, res the relationship between the U.S. and Israel as, as solid as ever? And how do you assess the impact of democratic progressives in Congress and elsewhere who are increasingly outspoken in support of Palestinians? Well, I think there are several things going on. You know, one is is when I worked for Daniel Patrick Moynihan in the Senate, uh, he was on the Foreign Relations Committee, and the senior Democrat was Joe Biden. And there's no question in my mind that Joe Biden is an old school Democrat when it comes to Israel. Uh, he sees himself as a friend of Israel, a supporter of Israel, a defender of Israel. Uh, and I think it's just baked into who he is and how he sees international affairs. The Democratic Party has been moving. I think a lot of younger and progressive, more progressive voices uh, have a much more circumspect view of Israel. And that's partly due to the Democratic Party moving. And frankly, it's partly due to, to Israel moving much closer to the Republican Party. And that's a, a step that Benjamin Netanyahu was very aggressive about for almost 20 years now, courting evangelical Christians instead of trying to, to maintain broad support in the American Jewish community, which tends to, to uh, lean more liberal. Um, I don't think Joe Biden is part of the progressive left critique of Israel. I don't think he has much time for it. I think he, he understands some need to accommodate it, but he's certainly not going to lead it. And I think he's not sympathetic. He is a pro-Israel Democrat of the 1970s variety, which is when he really cut his teeth in politics. So I don't think you're going to see a real break in these relations. I think you also have to, to take into account the real possibility that Benjamin Netanyahu is not going to be the prime minister of Israel. And Netanyahu has had strained relations with every democratic president he's had to work with. Uh, he had stra somewhat strained relations uh, with, with uh, President 
Bush, but but excellent relations with with Donald Trump. And in many ways, that was the the aberration in U.S.-Israeli relations. I don't think that, that Israel is is going to be able to shift U.S. thinking on Iran much. I think the the, the leadership team, and I've spoken to to all of them at various points. I think that they come from a position of being fundamentally sympathetic to Israel and fundamentally circumspect about Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, I think that means that U.S. relations with Israel are going to be strong. U.S. relations with Netanyahu will be bumpy, as I say, as I think have generally been the case with Netanyahu and every American president other than Donald Trump that he's had to work with. Let's talk a little about the record of the Trump administration in the Middle East, specifically regarding the Abraham Accords. Given events this month, how do you assess the Abraham Accords? And can a normalization process with Israel serve as a foundation, catalyst, or mechanism for conflict resolution in the region? I think it's, it's separate from what's going on now. It, it, it is isolated, insulated from what's going on now. It's very clear to me that the, neither the Emiratis or the Bahrainis or the Sudanese or the, the Moroccans have any impact on how the Israelis see their choices uh, right now. Um, it is a strategic choice that I think the Emiratis were, were most aggressive about pursuing, saying, look, we and the Israelis have many of the same enemies. They are concerned about political Islam. They are concerned with Iran. Uh, they are frankly cool to democratization in the Middle East because they see it leading to nowhere especially positive. And I've heard that from senior Israelis and senior Emiratis. And I think they said, so why are we not aligned? We have a lot to give each other on the security front, on the intelligence front. Uh, and, and we don't really have differences. I think in some ways the Emiratis do feel a certain amount of emotional connection to the Palestinians and to the extent that this is about Jerusalem and the holy sites, uh, I think the Emiratis are feeling a little conflicted and a little more pressure. To the extent it's about Hamas, I don't think the Emiratis begin to shed a tear for Israeli attacks on Hamas. And I don't think most Arab governments have a problem with attacking Hamas. The larger issue of Muslim access to Jerusalem, I think is more, um, is more complicated. I think this will create a pause in some of the normalization efforts. I don't think it'll stop them. I certainly don't think it will reverse them, uh, but it will create a pause. Uh, I think the, the Israel's the end of Israel's isolation in the region is likely uh, to continue over the long term, but over the shorter term, in many ways, this this reinforces uh, what what critics of the Emiratis have said is this doesn't do anything to obviate the need uh, to resolve the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It doesn't affect the Israeli calculus in any real way. Uh, and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is, is real and needs to be resolved. Uh, and that's going to require a lot more effort than a lot of Israelis have wanted to put through it because the Israelis had convinced themselves that the, the problem really didn't need to be solved. Not all Israelis, but, but I think a large number of Israelis said this, this problem doesn't need to be solved. 
and this may be a reminder um, that that actually does need to be solved. Do you see a connection or link even conceptually to the Palestinian protest and other protests in the region over the past two years? I'm thinking here of Sudan, Algeria, Iraq, and Lebanon, or even globally, such as Hong Kong, Black Lives Matter, and, and elsewhere? Um, you know, in, in some ways, there's been such a, a ritual around Palestinian protests that it's 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 hard for me to 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 tie them uh, to these other movements. Our, our mutual friend Nathan Brown wrote a book about the Muslim Brotherhood called "When Victory Is Not an Option," uh, written ironically just before the Muslim Brotherhood won a, a series of elections in the Middle East. But it does seem to me that that baked into the Palestinian protests is some sense of anger that comes out of the recognition that complete victory isn't going to happen. Um, I, I wonder if that equation is beginning to change as people lose faith in the two-state solution. Um, now a minority in Israel and the Palestinian uh, Authority think a two-state solution is viable. I wonder if that does open a certain nihilistic view of the purpose of protest, the consequences of protest. And if you do have that, that level of, of disaffection, I wonder if that means that they might go in a different direction than they've come. And, you know, one of the remarkable things uh, about the, the, the intifadas um, in both the late 1980s and, and the late 1990s uh, was a sense that, that they did lead to real change. I wonder if people have any faith in change. And if you don't, what do you think happens from the protests and how do you think people are going to respond to the protests? That may be putting us into a, a, different, a different situation. John, the Biden administration gave priority and appointed, appointed envoys for Iran and Yemen. How are those efforts going? And is it even realistic to think Iran would make concessions on, in Yemen or in Gaza or anywhere, given its own elections next month and during the nuclear talks in Vienna, as they don't seem to be linked to regional issues? You, you and I have been talking to Iranians a long time. Uh, in New York and elsewhere. And, and my, my sense is the Iranian goal is to be involved in negotiations because the Iranians think that if people are talking to them, they have an opportunity to give things and get things. And if nobody's talking to them, uh, then they just have to live in a, a society with a, a hard-pressed economy and a lot of isolation. Iran is a country that really doesn't have any allies. They see the United States with allies all over the world, certainly in their immediate neighborhood. Uh, and I think the Iranians feel trapped. And to the extent that people that there are ongoing negotiations, I think the Iranians feel that that it doesn't give them parity with the United States, but it gives them a way to get things from the United States. And as you know, as well as I do, that Javad Zarif's first instinct all the time is let's talk about prisoner exchanges. Let's be involved in the give and take and that'll get us things. So I think having an Iran envoy uh, who's not super empowered 
but who can engage with the Iranians is, is probably a useful thing, not because it's going to solve the Iran problem, but it'll give you tools to move the Iran problem to a better place. Um, Tim Lenderking, who, who I imagine you've known as long as I have as well, uh, is trying not so much to get things out of the Iranians, but to get the Saudis uh, to find the door out of a Yemen conflict, which they thought would be a really short conflict and has turned into a long, painful, expensive conflict that's done tremendous damage to Saudi Arabia's international standing, as well as to the people of Yemen. Um, I, so I think both of those are, are sort of limited efforts. Uh, I think they're relatively focused efforts. And I think they are going about as well as you could expect right now. There has been talk about whether the US should have a Syria envoy. And I think a Syria envoy, quite frankly, is, is important not so much to work with the parties in Syria, but to align the internal US government discussions about Syria, which in many ways have gotten shaggy and they've lost track of, of what people are really trying to do. What's our desired end state in Syria? And I think a Syria envoy would help us more internally than would help us externally. They've decided not so far to appoint a Syria envoy. And it does seem to me that our Syria uh, strategy is drifting. I don't think now is the time for an Arab-Israeli envoy because I don't think the administration thinks the time is ripe to make any serious moves um, on Israeli-Palestinian issues. We may come to a time after the conflict dies down, after we think about uh, how the U.S. could play a constructive role uh, helping Palestinian politics evolve. You may have a different environment in Israel. There may be a time when it's really uh, uh, propitious that to have uh, an Israel-Palestine envoy. But it seems to me at this point, you have to resolve these three overlapping political crises. You know, Mohammed Dev trying to move aside Yahya Sinwar in, in Gaza and Mahmoud Abbas presiding over, I think, an increasing shell of a government for the Palestinian Authority, clearly irrelevant to most of the violence going on now. And then Israel with an unprecedented uh, crisis going into a fifth election in just over two years with no sign of, of how Israel is going to resolve this and no sign of how Israeli politics are going to be able to deal with the very real challenges that Israel has moving forward. John, I know you've done a work on China and the Middle East. How much does the US have to worry about losing the competition to China in the region? And what do you see as China's advantages and disadvantages given current events and more broadly, they've been assertive on their Belt and Road type initiatives in the region. Obviously, COVID vaccine diplomacy uh, has uh, taken hold in the UAE and Egypt and elsewhere. How do you see- Well, although if their shots work better, they'd be doing better. Uh, and, and one of the problems that Chinese vaccine diplomacy has is the Chinese vaccine isn't very good compared to the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine and others. But look, China's trying to do something very different from what the United States is trying to do. And in some ways you might see it, you know, as the US has a sort of IBM approach uh, to we need to control the hardware. Um, what China's doing is in some ways the Amazon approach, their platform 
independent. They're trying to provide a service. They're, they're trying to build these um, economic ties, diplomatic ties that don't rely on a lot of military infrastructure. They argue that, that they're not really requesting much of governments. They're not looking for alliances. They're not looking for governments to line up with them on most issues, although we've seen increasingly they're trying to get governments to, to line up with them on, uh, on Taiwan. But they're not trying to, to push the US out of the Middle East. They're not trying to replace the US in the Middle East. They're trying to do something very different that meets their needs. And they're trying to address needs of local governments that the US doesn't address. China's calling card is we are an example of how you can have an economic transformation without social and political dislocation. And for governments in the Middle East that are looking at that what an energy transition away from hydrocarbons will mean for them and for the region, what China's promising, partly by promoting a successful surveillance state, partly by talking about how well you can do with state-led economic development, is a lot more attractive than the US, why don't you open up, liberalize, open your politics, open your, your economies. I think that the Chinese model is attractive to a lot of states and China remains an increasing importer of hydrocarbons at a time when the US has just gone back from, from being an, a net energy exporter to being an importer, but the US isn't driving uh global energy imports and china is so i think what china is trying to do is very different from what the us is trying to do i think china has less to offer um but china is trying to be alongside the united states and i think the united states has some very hard choices to make about what it's willing to let china do what it's unwilling to let china do what kinds of things it can offer states that China doesn't. And frankly, some places where the US should say, if you want to welcome China in, that's up to you. We can't do everything. And one of the things China's done very well is it's picked its targets in the Middle East. The US has had a much more uh, comprehensive approach to the region. I think there are probably areas where you're saying, if you want a relationship with China, that's okay. Go nuts. Last question. I'm a fan of Babel, your podcast with colleagues Will Todman and Natasha Hall. I like how you not only discuss political issues, but you seem to cover a lot more than that. Fantastic guests from the region. Tell us a little about your thinking about your podcast and the other initiatives you have going on at CSIS. So I, um, I'm glad you like Babel. We have a, a rising listenership, which I find very gratifying. I, I often see the importance of what we do in think tanks is, is understanding gaps and then filling those gaps, understanding what people aren't doing and trying to, to, to do that in a way that, that helps enhance the conversation. Um, I think the Middle East is a lot more interesting than, than a lot of people give it credit for being. Certainly when I was working as a, a special assistant to Bill Burns and writing his speeches when he was the Assistant Secretary of State for New Eastern Affairs. He's now the director of the CIA. But a little more than 20 years ago, he's the Assistant Secretary. And all the speeches were Iran, Iraq, Arab, Israeli, and then some other issue. It's kind of formulaic. And that's the way I think a lot of people look at the Middle East. 
I think Babel is a way to talk about different kinds of issues, whether it's a mini series on Russia in the Middle East or China in the Middle East, whether it's talking about environmental issues. Uh, I just recorded something on, on political protests in Jordan. I think there are ways to talk about issues with people who aren't known to the policy community, but have policy relevant things to say that, that help bring the conversation forward. I'm convinced that the role that think tanks should play, one of the most important roles, is framing issues in helpful ways that lead them toward solutions. And I think we spend too little time uh, thinking about framing issues and in some ways too much time talking about issues that a lot of people understand. Uh, we've just done a, a project that we're rolling out in the coming weeks called Sustainable States about how environmentally sustainable public utilities help address a lot of issues, not just environmental sustainability issues, but help address that yawning trust gap between populations and governments. Why is a security-focused think tank doing something on public utilities? It seems strange, it seems counterintuitive, but when you start to understand the framing of it, it helps you understand, so what's another explanation for why people protest? What's another way governments could develop activities that could deal with the demands of the public? I think think tanks need to, to get out of just doing the things that everybody knows they're interested in and do things that people can get interested in that help provide other ways to address the kinds of issues that people know are important. You know, maybe some ways it's like people say that the Ginger Rogers did what Fred Astaire did, but did it backwards in high heels, uh, that we do all the stuff in Iran and Iraq and Arab Israel and all the things that the people know are important to the region. But it seems to me that that's not the totality of the region. And the more time you spend in the region, the more you work with people in the region, the more you see there are other issues. And there are other issues that have solutions. There are other issues that have tantalizing connections that can get us out of a lot of the traps we've been in. And what Babel tries to do is take things that don't seem relevant, but darn, they're interesting. And you know what? It turns out they're not only interesting, they are relevant, and they can help provide different ideas about ways to move things forward. John, that's excellent. Thank you for your time and observations today. I really enjoyed it. I mentioned in the introduction, we've been friends and colleagues for over 20 years. I always learn from you and value your analysis. Thank you for sharing it with our listeners on, on the Middle East. Andrew, I have enjoyed talking to you for decades, as you point out, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. We will return after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings 
talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Thanks again to our guest, John Alterman, for joining us today and to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochelin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening today. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.